Romans 12, beginning at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us with this and give to us grace not only to hear, but grace to take in and grace to practice, to do what you are calling us to do in these verses. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You uh, have seen the bumper sticker, I'm sure, that reads, Coexist. It's purple. And if you've looked closely at it, you'll know that the word is constructed by using religious symbols. There's a cross in there, there's a Star of David in there, there's some other religious symbols. Uh, and, and sort of worldview images, if you could put it that way or think of it in that way. And whoever puts the bumper sticker on his or her car, it seems to me, there are a lot of interesting things I think to reflect upon and think about that bumper sticker and why people put it on their, bump, on their bumpers. But I, I suspect that the person who puts that bumper sticker on his or her car thinks that all people, though of differing religious persuasions, differing worldviews, ought to just live in peace and get along. 
coexist, live side by side in spite of their differences. Now, while there's a whole lot of stuff that could be said about that, here's the interesting thing to me. Of all people, Christians are called to live that way. Of all people, Christians are called to live that way. They are called to live alongside all kinds of people with all kinds of religious convictions and worldviews. And they're called to live alongside all of those different kinds of people peaceably, coexisting alongside all of those different, very different kinds of people. Not because they believe the differences don't matter. Christians know that the differences matter. They matter eternally. They matter significantly. But Christians can live peaceably with very different kinds of people, even loving and serving very different kinds of people because of passages like this. And because in the person of their Savior, they see someone doing precisely that thing. They see Jesus living that way. Loving and serving in the midst of of great diversity, loving and serving a society, even a government, the people around you because of passages like this. Think about it. That's why I wanted to read chapter 12, verse 14, into chapter 13 because I wanted for us to see that there really is a flow here. There's a movement here. There are a lot of commentators. I've run across this in reading the commentaries. A lot of commentators think that chapter 13, verse 1, is just sort of an out-of-the-blue comment by the Apostle Paul that it has nothing to do with anything else that's gone on before it or that's coming after it. But really, all Paul is doing as we move from chapter 12 and those first couple of verses and, and through the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13, he's simply working out what are the implications of the Christian life in different spheres of life. That's what he's doing. And think of the things that he said. Listen, again, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, how different is that? Bless, do not curse. Curse. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, coexist with all people. Christians can actually live peaceably and faithfully, can actually love a society, serve a government with which they are entirely unhappy, in the midst of which they would be entirely unhappy because of passages like this. Because that's what they're called to. That's what they're called to. Christians can actually adorn beautify the profession of the gospel by being the best citizens of the nation or country in which they find themselves. And they can do that because they actually have, as I said a couple of weeks ago, a higher allegiance, a higher privilege, a higher duty. That higher allegiance is to Jesus Christ, 
that higher privilege is being the child of the eternal God, that higher duty is to live out the reality of your association, my association with the eternal God in this world, in the midst of this world. Christians have the calling and by the grace of God have the ability to coexist. As I said before, because Jesus their king modeled it and Jesus their king calls them to it. Now let me give you three points. I'll actually suggest that these are sort of three strands that seem to me to come out of this passage, Romans chapter 13. Passage that addresses how Christians are to live in the state, how they're, how they're to live with, in relationship to the government, how they're to live in the society, whether they're living in Rome or Beijing or Vero Beach, Florida. Okay, three things. There is a penultimate authority. There is an ultimate authority, and there is a personal responsibility. There is a penultimate authority, there is an ultimate authority, and there is a personal responsibility. So let me weave these things together, just weave those three strands together, and then I want to reflect on them and think about them and try to work out some implications of them. Anything that is penultimate is just this side of ultimate. It's just a step removed from the ultimate. That's what penultimate is. There is a penultimate authority. And that penultimate authority, according to the Apostle Paul, is earthly government. Earthly government is a penultimate authority. It's not an ultimate authority, but it is a real authority. The ultimate authority is God himself, who has established earthly government, as a penultimate authority. So again, whether you live in Rome, which is where these folks lived, and you know something about the government in Rome, don't you? I mean, you've heard something through the years about Nero and Claudius and other Roman emperors. You've heard something about these people. You know something about Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman government in Judea responsible for the death of Jesus. So whether you live in Rome or Beijing or Tanzania or America or Jerusalem, there is a governing authority. It is a penultimate authority established by God who is the ultimate authority. And the call of God upon my life is to submit to the authority that God has established even down to the nitty-gritty kinds of things like posted speed limit signs. You know, you remember when they reduced the speed limit on Indian River Boulevard from 55 to 50? And the first couple of weeks after they did that, there were cops out there. I got busted coming to church one Sunday morning after they lowered the speed limit. Because I was, I was taking my five miles over from the old speed limit of 55 and doing 60 on Indian River Boulevard and got busted, pulled over. Maybe it was the tie 
Maybe it was the white shirt. I think he knew where I was headed. He cut me some slack. He gave me a break. You know the cops are gone from Indian River Boulevard now. And you know what the prevailing speed on Indian River Boulevard is? 60 miles an hour. But God posted a sign on Indian River Boulevard that says speed limit 50. God posted that sign through a penultimate authority, the city of Vero Beach or Indian River County, whoever it is that posts those things on Indian River Boulevard. You see? Down into the nitty-gritty of things like speed limit signs. And taxes. And taxes. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. There it is. There's there's the convergence of the three strands. God, the ultimate authority, has established a penultimate authority, and he calls me in obedience to his ultimate authority to obey and submit to this earthly authority. Now let's work out some, some implications here, or let's think about a few things. That's the principle. That's the idea. It's very simple. You don't need a preacher to explain verses 1 through 7 to you. It's there in black and white. But let's work some things out. Let's think about a few things. Let's think about this first. This passage is not written for armchair theologians and philosophers to contemplate the relationship of the church and the state. It's not a theoretical passage. It's a practical passage. It's a passage that's addressed to you and me, living in Vero Beach, Florida, but it was a passage addressed, as I said before, to Roman citizens living in Rome and and Christian citizens living in Rome. This is not theoretical stuff. This is practical obedience stuff. And so when when the what-if questions emerge, the sort of theoretical and philosophical questions, well, what about this situation, or what about that situation, or what about that circumstance? Those are not questions addressed here. They may be addressed other places. But the basic point is that God, who is the ultimate authority, has established a penultimate authority, and he calls upon his people to recognize his ultimate authority in establishing that penultimate authority and to obey and submit to that penultimate authority, even down into the nitty-gritty kinds of things like paying taxes and honoring the king or honoring the emperor, honoring the king or the emperor. What's the present-day application of that, my friends? You can fill in the blank. You know what the answer is. And again, it's Peter who says that. Peter says to do this. 
Honor the emperor. Who's the emperor? Nero is the emperor. Nero, the one who in just a short little bit of time is going to impale Christians on crosses in his, in his gardens and ignite them and use them as torches in his imperial gardens. Nero, who will be the one to execute the apostle Paul, at least according to most of what we understand and the pieces we can put together regarding the end of Paul's life. Now, let me just ask you a theoretical question. Do you think Paul would have written anything different if he had written this letter 10 years later, eight years later, four or five years later, when when the Roman emperor instituted a new tax which was an oppressive tax, this is in 58 AD, an oppressive tax, do you think Paul would have said, submit to the governing authorities and then put a footnote in the margin and said, check the footnote below, except when the emperor imposes an unwarranted or unjust tax? I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul is calling upon particular people, specific people in particular place, in particular time, to recognize earthly authorities and to submit to them. Okay, it's not a theoretical passage. It's a practical passage. It is about the business of working out and living the Christian life so that the gospel is adorned even in our relationship to the state. So that God is honored even by the obedience of his people as they live as citizens in the midst of the nations of the earth. Not when a government is the government you'd like to have, but when the government is the government that you have. It's in that circumstance that we submit, that we honor the emperor. So, not theoretical, practical, outworkings of the gospel. Second thing, and this is sort of an elaboration of that first thing. Let's remember where we are in this letter. Chapters 1 through 11 are the indicatives. This is what God has done, what he's done for us in Christ. And then you have that transitional passage, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which ends with this language that you may show, that you may demonstrate what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't live as the world lives, but be transformed by the renewal of the totality of your being, heart and mind and will, the totality of who you are, beginning with the mind, having your mind, your thinking re-altered and changed and brought into conformity with the word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what follows in the rest of chapter 12 and then 13 and 14 is the outworking of what that transformed life looks like. These are implications of that. And what Paul is saying is, this is what it looks like for a transformed person to relate to the state. A changed person submits to the government, even when the government isn't the government they would like to have or prefer to have. So that's the second thing. 
Number one, it's practical. Number two, it's the natural outworking of the things we've been seeing in chapters 1 through 11 and then beginning at 12. This is what it means to live the Christian life. And then here's a third thing. Government doesn't exist because of sin. Government doesn't exist because of sin. It's not as though sin and the fall create this environment in which government becomes necessary, in which governing authorities are needed. Government existed on the other side of the fall. Government existed in the garden. Human beings are designed to be governed. You are made to be governed. We had a cute little exchange as we were getting ready to come in for worship, the elders and I, Zach and and Clayton and I. Clayton said he likes to sign letters with black pens. Zach signs his letters with a blue pen because the text of the letter is black. And in the professional world, you sign a letter with an ink that is different from the ink on the page in order to reassure people that you actually have signed that letter. And it's not just the superimposition of a signature that somebody else imposed on the letter. That's why you sign professionally letters with a blue pen. Clayton said... I'm going to change the world because I like black ink. So I'm going to have my secretary now produce all of my letters in blue type. (laughs) So that the world can be built around me. He said that. See, and that's where we are, aren't we? That is fundamentally what is wrong, if you will, with the human race. That we want to be self-governing and we want to govern everything else. But the fact of the matter is, folks, that doesn't lead to a good place. You were made to be governed and governed, government existed on the other side of the fall. For those of you who went through the book, God's Big Picture with me, you'll remember the five motifs that you find in Genesis 1 and 2 that are these continuing motifs that run through the whole of Scripture that the kingdom of God involves a king and it involves a king who gives his law word to govern his people as they live in his land that they might know blessing and prosperity. Government has always existed with God as the ultimate governor. And God entrusted his law word to Adam. And Adam became, if you will, the provincial governor. And it was Adam's responsibility first to engage and embrace that law word himself and then to ensure that all of his progeny, all of his descendants engaged and embraced that law word as well. Why? Because God is a cruel and oppressive taskmaster? No, because God knows that we are designed to be governed and he governs his people that they might know blessing and prosperity and joy. And isn't it the case that when we throw off God's law 
word and reject his rule that our difficulties begin. Right? So government has always existed. And I know, I know this cuts against the grain. It certainly does cut against the grain of all of my impulses and instincts and everything I am. It cuts against the grain for me to engage and embrace this notion which is telling me that law and rule and governance are good for me. They're good for me. You were made to be governed with God as your ultimate governor and with penultimate government put in place for your well-being. You see that here in this text. Paul tells us that these earthly authorities are here for our good. They exercise that authority for our good. They're a threat to bad behavior, not a threat to good behavior. They exist in order to restrain evil, in order to punish wrongdoers, and they exist for the good of God's people. That's what God's design always has been regarding government. Now, we can say fourthly, that having seen sin enter into the world, earthly government functions differently. Earthly government does function differently because of sin in the world. Earthly government is an instrument of judgment upon those who do bad or evil. It functions as a corrective. It functions as a restrainer. But having said that, earthly government continues, and Paul uses interesting language in this passage, continues to be a servant or a minister of good for the people of God. Now, how does that begin to touch me? How does that begin to touch me? This idea that earthly government actually serves me and ministers to me, is a minister of good for me. Well, let me suggest some things. Earthly government reminds me that I am a sinner who needs to be governed. I'm a sinner who needs to be governed. I guess I've sort of alluded to this already in using Clayton as an illustration, but I'll direct attention away from Clayton to me and all the rest of us and use another illustration. You go to Tanzania and you try to drive in Tanzania and you realize that earthly government exposes the worst in us. I mean, there are motorcycles over there by the tens of thousands. And if you don't have an earthly government to restrain and to control, it is utter chaos. And the thing I thought about this last year when I was in Tanzania is there's one principle that is governing how people drive in Tanzania. It is the principle of self-preservation. The principle of self-preservation. They don't care about anybody else, and the only reason they would restrain themselves is because of some threat to their own existence. There is a need, right? And government reminds me 
that I am the sinner who needs to be governed. Government does another thing for me. It teaches me personally, ultimately, to submit to the providence of God, the mysteries of the providence of God. Here's how it does it. Think about family, for for example. Read Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And look at the order and the flow of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments have to do with God. The last five commandments have to do with our obedience and our life. The fifth commandment has to do with the family, with fathers and mothers in their relationship to children, and children learning to submit to their parents, learning to be governed by their parents. Why do they need that government? Well, they're created for it, but they need it because they are vipers in diapers. (laughs) Because they have born into them this incredible capacity for rebellion. And children need to learn in the family, and God has created a wonderful system within which they learn this. Children need to learn to submit to their parents so that when they leave the home and they're out in the midst of life and they're confronted with all of the vagaries of life and all of the uncertainties of life and all of the confusion that there is in life, they are able to submit to God at the end of the day who is in providential control over all of those vagaries and all of those uncertainties. It's much easier to submit to an unseen God who orders all things for the well-being of his children, when in the family the child has learned to submit to parents in the midst of all of the vagaries that there are in a family. It's a great training ground for learning how to submit to the sovereign outworkings of the purposes of God. So many kids say, my parents are so unreasonable. I said it. My kids said it. You said it. My parents are so unreasonable. Right? Let me just say it again. If children can't learn to submit to the vagaries of parental authority in life in a family, how will they ever be equipped to live happily and faithfully in the midst of the vagaries of life? under the ultimate and supreme authority of the God of heaven and earth. Right? So, government teaches us to submit to the providence of God. And then here's another thing, as this touches me, as all of these things begin to touch me personally. Earthly government teaches us that the government we have is not the government we long for. (laughs) Now, a couple of you nodded your heads, and I wonder why you nodded your heads. It's okay. It's okay that you nodded your heads. But what I'm suggesting is this, that earthly government established by God for our good so that we might be reminded that we are sinners so that we might learn to submit to the providence of God 
even the best of those earthly governments fall woefully short of the government you most deeply long for. Because the government that you most deeply long for is the government of the kingdom of God in its consummate expression. And we should never confuse the two. We should never confuse an earthly penultimate and very real authority with the ultimate and final and perfect authority of God as it will find expression in his consummated kingdom. We should never confuse the two. Even the best, even the best of human governments have deep and glaring deficiencies. Ours included. I'm Irish. I know from history that African Americans actually moved out of neighborhoods in Chicago when the Irish moved in. It was not a good thing to be an Irishman in Boston or Philadelphia or Chicago. It was not a good thing to be an American Indian in the 18th and 19th centuries. In some senses, it wasn't a really good thing to be a woman in the United States of America until the early 1900s when women were granted the right to vote. Even the best have deep and glaring deficiencies. And as good as this one is, we should never confuse it with what we most long for. And that is the final expression of the kingdom of God where King Jesus, as Psalm 96 and 97 remind us, where King Jesus has a throne whose foundation is justice and righteousness. So, the government is there, it is established by God. God is the ultimate authority. These earthly governments are penultimate authorities. The call of God upon our lives is to live in obedience to those governments, understanding that those governments remind me that I need to be governed. Those governments teach me what it is to submit to the providence of God in the midst of the vagaries of life. And earthly government teaches me that the government that I have, as good as it may be, is not the government that I most long for. So, how do I live? Purely and simply, I live the way Jesus did. I seek by his grace to live the way Jesus did, rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Doing what Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, encouraged the Jewish exiles in Babylon to do in Jeremiah 29, to seek the peace and the welfare of the city to which they'd been called, to pray for it, to engage it, but understanding always 
that it was not their final home, not the final and best expression of the government they most longed for. How do I live this Christian life? I live it seeking by God's grace in obedience to Jesus to be faithful in the midst of all, all of the arenas of life where I find myself, including the government. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks that you are the ultimate, final, greatest authority. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you have given us government for our good. Oh Lord, help us, even when it's hard, by your grace, by your grace, to live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven while being citizens in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. We pray in your name. Amen.